Well, good morning. Uh, I had technical difficulties printing my notes this morning. Uh, for those of you who know me, you know I'm kind of a Luddite sympathizer, so <laughs> having a computer up here is anxiety-producing. Um, this morning, uh, well, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Tobias. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Christ the King, and uh, it's my privilege to get to preach here again this morning. We're going to continue with our Advent series. We're tracing the life of David. We've been looking at David really um, all year, and we're going to continue tracing that through Advent, looking at aspects of his life that inform our expectation, our celebration of the birth of our Lord um, during this season. And uh, there has been a little bit of a change of plan. Uh, you'll notice that in your bulletin, we're going to look at Luke 18. Uh, and we were going to look at the theme of the son of David. Well, that's not going to happen this morning. So um, I think we might have gotten a slide of what we will be uh, looking at. We're going to look at the theme of the God of David. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46. Uh, so go ahead and turn there now. Um, <clears throat> Matthew 22, 41 through 46. And let's give our careful attention uh, to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we continue to thank you for your faithfulness to your people, your faithfulness to call a people to yourself. We thank you for your word. We thank you for what a blessing it is to us. We thank you that you nourish us by it. Oh Lord, we ask that you will do that this morning. We ask that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us in this passage. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, so we are in Matthew 22, and I don't know uh, when the last time you read Matthew 22, but it could be a little... Uh, daunting to just jump right in. Where are we in this gospel? Uh, so I wanted to situate us a little bit. Uh, and one of the things I want to do is just briefly talk to you about the structure of Matthew. You may not know this, but Matthew is structured around five discourses. Five times in the gospel, Jesus uh, goes into extended teaching. Uh, and if you had a red-letter Bible, it would be obvious because uh, most of the words would be all in red. Uh, this happens in chapters 5 through 7, 
10, 13, 18, and 24 through 25. Uh, and you can look it up. These are, this punctuates his narrative. And uh, he talks about various things. For example, he talks about kingdom ethics uh, in 5 through 7. And he talks about relationships in the kingdom in chapter 18. And these discourses are signaled at the end, each one. Uh, Matthew will say something like this. He'll say, and when he had finished saying these things, and then the gospel goes on. And, but, you know, that's about eight chapters. There are 28 chapters in the gospel of Matthew. Well, what's going on in between? Well, in, we have these in-between sections that fill up the bulk of Matthew's gospel. And what we find there are travel narratives. They go from one town to another, or healings, or more parable teachings, things like that. And friends, this morning, that's where we find ourselves. In Matthew 22, we are situated between Jesus' teaching on kingdom relationships in chapter 18 and that last discourse in chapters 24 through 25 where he talks about the future of the kingdom. And it's here, in this section, that the tension between Jesus and the Jewish leadership is reaching a boiling point. And that's happening because of several reasons. Um, first of all, Jesus has finally entered Jerusalem. And you may recall in chapter 21, when he arrives in Jerusalem, he arrives to shouts of Hosanna, which means save we pray. He, they say, the, the crowds and the children, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, this annoys the Jewish leadership. And if you were to look at uh, chapter 21, um, uh, let's see, I should have written it down. Um, verse 16. If you look at chapter 1, verse 16, you'll see that the, um, that the Jewish leadership approaches Jesus. And they say, hey, do you hear what they're saying? They're saying Hosanna to you. To you. Well, friends, this, this is, astonishes them. And the reason it astonishes them is because uh, they're saying save to what they're considering to be a mere man. And I love what Jesus says to them. Look at what he says in verse 16. He answers them, yes, I hear it. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared Praise. Friends, that psalm is Yahweh speaking. He had prepared, ordained praise from children and infants for himself. And in answer to the Jewish leadership's questioning about his arrival and accepting this Hosanna praise, Jesus quotes Psalm 8. This is astonishing and it's infuriating. But it doesn't end there. As the events of the chapter continue to build, you see Jesus curse the fig tree. Remember, he goes out the next morning. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree, and he says, hey, I want to get something to eat. He goes up to it, and he sees that it's not bearing fruit. And what does he do? He curses it. He curses it, and it miraculously withers. And, of course, this is more than just some incidental, incidental miracle. <laughs> it's more than that. Uh, what it symbolizes is God's judgment coming on fruitless Israel, and in particular, 
upon the Jewish leadership. You can see the tension boiling over, but it doesn't end there. As chapter 21 bleeds into chapter 22, Jesus gives a couple of parables. And one in particular, I think, is striking. He gives the parable of the tenant. You remember this, or the tenants. You remember this parable? You have a landowner who plants a vineyard. He hires tenants to cultivate that vineyard. And then he goes out of country. And when harvest time comes around, he says, he sends his servants to bring back the fruit of the harvest. And one by one, as the tenants receive the servants of the landowner, they stone, they kill, and they beat them. And so the landowner says, well, maybe they'll respect my son. If I send my son, then they will respect my authority. And so he sends his son. And what do they do? They don't respect him. They kill him as well. And Jesus says... Of such men like that, the kingdom will be torn away from them. Y'all, the Jewish leadership, they weren't dummies. They connected the dots. They knew Jesus was indicting them. They knew he was talking about them. And in fact, in verse 45 of chapter 21, you see it very clearly. They perceive that he is talking about them. And so what do they want to do? They want to arrest Jesus. But they hesitate because of the crowd. The crowd believes Jesus to be a prophet. They want him gone, but the crowd likes him. What are they to do? And this brings us to chapter 22. And in verse 15, you see what they do. Um, All the verses from 15 up to our passage this morning, basically, they comprise three questions. The Jewish leadership hatch a plan to publicly humiliate Jesus and therefore win the crowd's favor. That's what they want to do. Now, this might be lost on us. You see, public questioning, particularly at this time, oftentimes was used to expose, humiliate, and attack an opponent. In Matthew's Gospel, private questioning is where you would question with sincerity. And so we see, for example, in Matthew 17, when the disciples couldn't cast out a demon, they, Matthew tells us deliberately, uh, they, they pulled Jesus aside privately and asked him, hey, why couldn't we do this? But here, this is intended for public humiliation, ridicule, and to bring Jesus down. And so one by one, first the Pharisees, and then the Sadducees, and then the Pharisees again, they ask him questions. The Pharisees started off. They say, hey, should we pay Caesar tribute? Thinking that's a good one. We'll get him with this one. And Jesus says famously, give me a coin. Let me see that denarius. And as he looks it over, he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's (coughs) and to God's what is God's. They didn't stump him. And then the Sadducees come, and they have this interesting scenario. Uh, They say, there's this woman, she's had a husband, uh, but he passed away. And so she married another, and another, and another. She ended up having seven husbands, and then she passed away as well. Hey, Jesus, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? 
There's a stumper. And Jesus says, you know, you're off the mark. Uh, in the resurrection, men and women, women will neither be given nor received in mar marriage. Oh, and by the way, I already know y'all don't believe in the resurrection, you Sadducees. You didn't stump me. All right. So the Pharisees see the, the, the Sadducees struggling. They say, okay, let's give it one more shot. And they come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And I love what Jesus says. Rather than giving some kind of esoteric rule, he distills the greatest commandment into love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And then he adds one, which totally goes along with it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they don't say anything. And what's interesting about this whole scene is that the Jewish leadership engaged in it because they wanted to take Jesus down. But it's not working. Their scheme is starting to crumble. <clears throat> and in fact, actually, this is seen uh, in verse 33 of chapter 22. Look at what the crowd said, or look at what is said of the crowds. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching. They wanted to humiliate Jesus, went over the crowds, and it's not working. And it's at this point that we come to our text this morning in verses 41 through 46. And it's here, they're out of questions, and it's here that Jesus turns the table on them. Notice what he says. He says to the Pharisees, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, that might be, might sound like an odd question to you. But I think this section beginning in verse 15 has set it up for us. You see, the Pharisees' first question, should we pay Caesar tribute? What they were asking was, hey, Jesus, should we put a denarius in the coffer? Should we hand over a denarius to pay for what's called the poll tax? Now, what's significant about a denarius? Well, a denarius was minted for the purpose of paying the poll tax. And on one side of a denarius, you would see this inscription. You would see, at this time, you'd see Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. Just hold that in your mind's eye. It's an inscription, Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. In other words, this little coin, a denarius, proclaimed that the, rule, that the emperor of that time was a son of God. Carrying this in your pocket was essentially a little pocket idol. And it's interesting that the Pharisees were able to hand it over to Jesus. This set Jesus up to come back with the Pharisees' second, after the Pharisees' second question, and set them up to talk about who is the real Son of God. It's brilliant. It's just brilliant. <clears throat> and so when Jesus asks this question, what do the Pharisees say? Well, they give the standard response. They say, the Messiah is the son of David. <clears throat> and, and this is 
what you would expect. You remember our sermon from last week? We talked about the covenant of David. Whose line would the Messiah come from? David. He would be a son of David. But notice that Jesus doesn't affirm their response. Did you notice that? It's almost like he's expecting more. And the fact is, he follows it up. Instead of affirming it, he follows it up with another question, and it's a zinger. Uh, look at verse 43. Jesus says this. <clears throat> he says, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? And they're stumped. They don't know what to say. The text says that they dare not ask him any more questions. They're struck dumb. And I got to tell you, this is a totally limited analogy, but my mind keeps going to that scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. When they're at the bridge, you know, some of you know what I'm talking about. And the bridge keeper wants to prevent Arthur and his knights from crossing the bridge. And so he tries to give them stumper questions and he asks them, so what's the uh, airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Yes! <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> Arthur flips it on him. And he poses a question to the bridge keeper and he goes flying into the crevasse. It's brilliant. Friends, I think that is the type of thing that's going on here. The Jewish leadership has come to Jesus trying to stump him with questions. And Jesus turns the tables and asks them one they uh, either can't or they really refuse to answer. So what is going on here? What is it about these six verses that cause Jesus' most ardent critics uh, to become silent? And specifically, <coughs> what, why doesn't Jesus affirm their answer to his question about the Messiah's sonship? Uh, this is worth pursuing. They say he's the son of David. Why doesn't he affirm that? I think, it's, I think this is interesting because in Matthew's gospel, if you remember, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks Peter, hey, Peter, who do you say I am? And you remember what Peter says? He says, you are the Christ. And Jesus blesses Peter and says, I'm going to build my church on that confession. And, you know, also the, the appellation son of David, it's been used, I think, about a, a half a dozen times up to this point in Matthew's gospel. Uh, and most recently when he entered Jerusalem, Hosanna to the son of David. My point is Jesus has accepted both the title of Christ and the appellation son of David. Why didn't he affirm their answer here? I think the answer lies back in that zinger that Jesus posed, uh, and particularly in verses 43 and 44. <clears throat> you see, as he goes on in verse 44, uh, Jesus says in verse 43, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? If he's just David's son, how can David call him Lord? And then he goes on to quote Psalm 110. And friends, this is a messianic psalm. And what do I mean by that? 
Well, Messianic Psalms, they point ultimately to fulfillment in uh, God's provision of a Messiah, of the Messiah. They are future-oriented. And if you were to look at Psalm 110, you would see that future orientation. You would see ultimate victory coming by the faithfulness of this Messiah. You would see that he would be vindicated and that he would be seated at the right hand of the Lord. It's a messianic psalm. <clears throat> and that's why Psalm 110, by the way, is quoted more often than any other psalm in the New Testament. Uh, the writers again and again went to it as evidence for Jesus' messiahship, particularly the book of Hebrews. And so here, it's as if Jesus is inviting the Pharisees to take up a known messianic psalm and follow its logic. How can the Messiah merely be David's earthly son? God himself has invited this man to sit at his right hand. That's hardly the position of an earthly son. And what's more, in this psalm, David himself calls him Lord. If he's his son, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit. In other words, it's as if Jesus were saying this, hey, Pharisees, look, of course the Messiah is the son of David. From an earthly perspective, that's a given. But David himself, speaking by divine inspiration, did you catch that, by the way? Jesus introduces this quote by saying, David speaking in the spirit. By divine inspiration, he says that the Messiah is more than that. Pharisees, I'm more than that. I'm the Messiah, and I'm the Son of God. And if you'd recognize me for who I am, you'd stop trying to trap me, and you'd follow me. Friends, this is exactly what they would not do. They wouldn't follow the logic of Scripture. And they wouldn't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And so they stopped asking questions, and they sought to get rid of Jesus by other means, which we know. But friends, here, Jesus had won the field. He had vanquished his foes. And the reality of that is seen in the following chapter, in chapter 23, where Jesus goes on the attack and he just lambasts the Jewish leadership in those woe passages, those famous woe passages of Matthew. And the significance of this exchange here in Matthew's gospel is striking to me. You see, son of David is not used again for Jesus in this gospel. Instead, it's replaced by son of God. And there are notably two instances of this. The first one is at Jesus' arrest when he's standing before the high priest in Matthew 26. And remember what the high priest says. He says, I adjure you by the living God Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And I love what Jesus says here. He responds to him in verse 64. You have said so. It's essentially saying, yeah. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Did you catch that? Y yes, he quotes Daniel 7, that image in Daniel 7. But he also alludes to Psalm 110. Did you catch that? He will be seated at the right hand of power. That's what we just read in Psalm 110, 1. 
It's as if he's just coming back to this theme with the high priest. The other notable example of the use of Son of God with Jesus comes at the end of the book, in the end of the gospel. Jesus has suffered humiliation, torture, and he has given up his spirit on the cross. And you remember what the centurion says? <coughs> Matthew 27, verse 54. The centurion of all people says, truly, this was the Son of God. And you know, friends, <coughs> excuse me, this Gentile's confession, coming at the end of Matthew's gospel, it invites us to ask ourselves, what do we think of the Christ? Whose son do we think he is? To put a finer point on it, in the midst of this Advent season, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of our Savior 2,000 years ago, who do we actually think Jesus is? Uh, perhaps you like the Pharisees. You see him as the son of David. He's royalty. He's answer to prophecy. But he's a mere man. Friends, that won't do. Christ demands more. Remember I brought up Peter's confession in Matthew 16 earlier. Jesus asked him, Peter, who do you think I am? Peter didn't just say, you are the Christ. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's when Jesus blessed him. And said he would build his church on him. Friends, uh, maybe in the midst of this Christmas season, maybe your conception of Jesus has been shaped more by the figure of Santa Claus or some other benevolent man or woman. He's not God, but maybe he's got the inside track to God's favor, and maybe he's able to provide you with comfort and possessions. Friends, that won't do. Jesus demands more. He demands that you see him as offering to you more than earthly riches. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Or um, perhaps, perhaps you think that Jesus is someone to celebrate, maybe even emulate. No, he's not God to you. But he was an exceptionally good man and teacher. He was a special example to follow. But friends, that is folly. It is folly for you and for me as sinners to think that we can gain anything by our righteous deeds. Prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Brothers and sisters, we can't have Christ unless we have him 
as he's proclaimed here in this text. We can't truly celebrate this season of Advent unless we celebrate Jesus, the Christ, as the Son of God, as David's God, as our God. And friends, this is so significant, absolutely so significant, that it became a litmus test for true belief for the early church. Listen to what um, John says in 1 John 5. He says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Friends, I'm reminded of what we often say when we recite the Nicene Creed. Remember what we say about Jesus? We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. Friends, do you believe that? Do you know Jesus to be the Messiah, not just the son of David, but the son of the living God? He offers himself freely to you here today. Let's pray. Almighty God, we bow before you, humbled uh, in your presence, and yet overcome with thankfulness for your faithfulness to save a people, thankful for the work of your Son, our Savior. And we ask that you will impress upon us again and again, more and more, the love that you have for us displayed in the sacrifice of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.